This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad that you've come along today. And look, this is going to be a fun episode. And some of you saw the title, and this might be a question that you've wondered about for a while. So I hope you'll stay around. This podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are training trusted leaders for faithful churches. And we have a sense that this doesn't just mean just training people to become pastors and senior pastors in churches. Instead, we have things that we offer for the whole church, people who are Sunday school teachers, people who just want to go deeper in their faith. We have something called the Wesley Institute. This is a month-long, a several-month-long process of working through every book of the Bible. And we're adding to that kind of a Wesley Institute too, which is an opportunity to go deeper into theological studies. So you can find information about that at wbs.edu. In addition to all of our other academic programs where we offer a bachelor's degree in pastoral ministry, pastoral ministry, right? That's what we say? My accreditation. Uh, Christian, it's Christian ministry. Christian mission. Christian, Christian ministry. Ministry. Yeah. And then we have various MAs, Masters of Divinity, Doctor of Ministry programs. So we hope you'll check that out. Um, today, I have on the podcast with me one of our very own professors from WBS, Dr. David Schreiner. Dave, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. So Dave serves as associate in a couple roles. He's the associate academic dean. He's also an associate. Are you associate yeah. professor? Mm-hmm. Associate professor of Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So Dave came over to my house last night, right. and my boys attacked him with their swords. Right. Almost. And so and right. in that moment, yeah. when that happened, that just led to an impromptu lecture on Ehud. Well, it was, it, was, it was a bit, it was a bit um, prodded. You were like, okay. Yeah, I was. Share, share with my kids some information. So I was like, okay. Right. Look, when you have an Old Testament scholar in the house, what do you do? Yeah, just take, uh, take yeah. advantage of it. Ask him to bore everybody with his lectures. There was not boredom. <laughs> there was no boredom. My boys were holding on to their swords, looking up at day. What irony? And they're here. And, and then you started talking about. I'm like, look, Old Testament. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm hopeful that yeah. as they listen to you, that they might think, huh, I'd like to do that job. Right? <laughs> Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Learn about Iron Age yeah, and Iron Age. spears uh, and all Iron kinds culture, of things. Javelins and spears. And, yeah. So this then led to an interesting discussion, too. Like, as we went on further, Abby and the kids have been working their way through, like, studying the Bible mm-hmm. themselves in our kind of like our mm-hmm. homeschool curriculum. And they've just, they're like halfway through Joshua. Right. And then the discussion came up. Which it always does. And this is, are you, are you used to this? Yeah, yeah, it happens. It, it comes up. It comes up a lot. Like, what do we, what do we, what do we do with this? How do we, huh? I mean, if you're every Old Testament scholar worth their salt needs to be prepared prepared to deal with, you know, violence in yeah, the Old right. Testament, mm-hmm. um, these type genocide, these mm-hmm. type of questions. So, for instance, right. we just went and we had another after that. After we had a half an hour on Ehud, then we had half an hour forty five right. minutes on Joshua. Was it that so? Long? For instance, oh I don't goodness. know. Well, I don't know how long it was. <laughs> oh my goodness! But I'll t- I'm not saying that in a uh, no, discriminating yeah, yeah. way. It was a great yeah. half an hour, and my kids were really listening. That's good. So That's I thought. Good. If they're listening and they're interested, I think my podcast audience right. would be as well. So I think let's, you can help them. Let's do it. Okay, so for instance, Joshua chapter 10, verse 28. That day, Joshua put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors. And he did to the king, oh, here, Makeda, as he had done to the king of Jericho. Right. So this brings up this question, right. why, why would God ask Joshua to conquest the land and totally destroy right. everything? I mean, what's going on here? Yeah. So there's a lot going on there. Okay. Um, 
And and I and I will back up and say that this has uh, been kind of a point of um, recent conversation. It's kind of been revived for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Charlie Trim's book that's getting ready to come out uh, in well, they pushed back publication. It was supposed to be in February. I think it's coming out in March now. It's um, it's about this topic in in um, uh, the the destruction of the Canaanites or something along those lines. It's published by Erdman's, and it's kind of uh, continuing a, a a lengthy conversation. Um, there's been some ongoing conversation about violence in the Old Testament over the past few years. And anytime you have conversation about violence, it ultimately leads into the book of Judges uh, and the book of Joshua, because particularly with Joshua, um, many English translations, um, particularly in chapter 10 and chapter 11, um, start talking about utterly destroying people, devoting people to the ban. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and it paints for us a picture that's quite disturbing. Yeah. So um, let me b- stop yeah. for a second. So you said just over the past couple of decades, but there's a sentence, or just recently, but I mean, there's a way that this has been a topic for right. centuries. It's a perpetual topic. It, like it's, and it's probably always going to be there, but but you're saying kind of like in the academic discipline, right, right. it's heated up recently. Yeah. It's become more... Yeah, popular. everything everything's cyclical, right? right. You, you revisit old things, and, and, and recently, within recent memory, definitely within the past handful of years, yeah. uh, particularly two or three, this has come up again, um, uh, and this is this is always going to be there because people like Richard Dawkins will point to these passages and talk about the ludicrousness of, of Christianity and Christian yeah, theology, yeah. and you know how can you worship a God who who advocates genocide and those types of things? And so there's a lot of straw men that are being created and used for discussion and beaten and 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 will destroy one straw man only to create another one and we'll, sure. we'll beat on him and and so there's 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 all this to say that there's a lot a lot a lot going on here. And um, while it's very difficult to answer everybody's questions, mm-hmm. all the questions I should say that, that anybody may have, um, w- you know, we have to approach this conversation with uh, um, nuance, right? Patience, um, intentionality. Because as I've already mentioned, there's a lot that's going on here. We have to think about not just historical things. We have to think about literary things. We have to think about linguistic things because yeah. they're all converging. They're all converging right, here. Right, right, right. And then there's also a final layer onto this of, of the, these passages and what's the meaning and, and how do we take these passages away uh, for the context of the canon. Right, um, because right, right. Because you order the implications of Jesus and, and, and the issue of final judgment day and you know, Orthodox Christian theology. That adds a whole other layer to it as well. Right. So let's just start with it then. Like, right. how do we? Is this a good translation? Like, I'm, I just read from the NIV. Totally destroyed <laughs> no, everyone in it. No English translation is a good translation oh, on go. this topic. And, okay, and, that's a that's a really important. Yeah. No English translation is a good translation. Right. So, what do you mean by that? Well, this is a word. Uh, the word that is, and and you can open your own English translation up to this, and you can see what your favorite Bible translation says. Like I said, I'm used to. Um, ideas of totally destroy, utterly destroy, devote to the ban. There's that one. Ban, B-A-N-E, and yeah, ban. not De- the ban. Devote to the ban. Okay. And, and you, you know, you first read that, you're kind of like, what? Well, there's a reason to that. But anyway, in my opinion, there's no English translation that really does this concept justice right. because we're dealing with a family of words, and the noun is harem, okay. and the verb is haram, okay. and it comes from the root het resh mem. Okay. And... There's no good English translation for this. Um, there's no one-to-one correspondence. This is this is a, in my opinion, this this word borderlines on the untranslatable. Okay. And and I often tell my students, well, you get to this, and and maybe you should just say God haram them, 
or <laughs> Joshua Hiram them or right, something right, along sure, those lines. Sure. Because that signals to me as your professor that you understand the baggage associated with this. There's a lot of baggage here. So that's the first thing we have to realize. There's no good English translation for, for all of the things that we're going to talk about. And so you really have to be patient here and you yeah. really have to dig deep and, and really kind of figure out all the nuances involved. So that's the first thing. So, so even in like the, the way you would get to a translation mm -hmm. is you would look at it and how it's paralleled in other ancient Near East languages right. and how it's used. So, I mean, is this word not show up harem? Uh, I can't get my gutturals in there as yeah. well as you, but uh, yeah, does it, it not show up? Uh, you know, one of the things one of the things that we do, uh, particularly in Old Testament studies, when we're dealing with a difficult concept or a difficult term, is we look to the related languages to Biblical Hebrew. Um, we call these cognate languages, and yeah. so we look to see if there's the same word, or if it has related words that are used in similar contexts. And those types of things. And, and this happens all the time. You may look to Aramaic, you may look to Ugaritic, you may look to Akkadian, those types of things. Because these, these languages are all related, yeah, yeah. some more closely than others. And sometimes you can find this word or its cousins or anything like that used in similar ways. And that helps us. That understands the semantics. Because when you're looking at a word and you're trying to translate a word, you're looking at more than just the word. You're looking at the way the word is functioning at the clausal level. So yes. in relationship to other words, etc. And so in particularly difficult cases, we also look outside Biblical Hebrew or Greek and look yeah. for related languages. The problem with this word is that outside of Biblical Hebrew, there's not a lot of occurrences of it. Interesting. So there's one occurrence that we have in Moabite on the Moabite stone, and it's actually a very close parallel where Mesha talks about how he haramed the Israelite population and devoted them to, haramed them to Chemosh, his god. So it's actually quite, quite close, but the problem is in the Moabite stone is that you just have one occurrence of it. It's just one. And Joshua, I think this word in its related, this, 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 this root with the verbal form and the nominal form, I think it appears over 20 times. Yeah, so it's yeah, all over the book of Joshua. So even in that case, though, the, the Moabite, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So like even in that case, though, it obviously can't be the total destruction. Right. Right. Then, and, and that gets into some other things that we'll get into. Okay. And, right. Sorry and to jump ahead. No, it's, yeah. it's perfectly fine. And, and so... But from a linguistic standpoint, we just don't have a lot of data to work with, and we don't have the cognate data, and that makes things difficult. So yeah. essentially, any attempt to understand what's going on here is reduced to the biblical corpus, okay. large part. Yeah, there's sure. there's a few other um, uh, there's a few other occurrences, one maybe two, um, that are a little bit more distantly related. Moabite's very close. Moabite's very close. It's a very close cousin to biblical Hebrew, and so the occurrence at Moabite is is helpful particularly because of all the parallels and how yeah. it's used as well. But that's about it. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So then if we move away from that, so now, okay, we're dealing with this. So we have a hard time translating mm -hmm. this into English. Mm -hmm. So then how, how then do, does the idea of them being totally destroyed miss the point? I mean, is that happen? Are they totally no. destroyed? No, I would say probably not. Uh, and again, bear with me here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but there's other things that are converging on this, um, because you also have to ask your question, the question about the type of literature. What okay. type of literature are we doing? And this, I think, is helpful, because while we don't have the linguistic parallels that we right, would like right. in the cognate languages, we actually have the literary parallels. Interesting. And so we have similar literary types, the, a, a similar type of literature that you read in Joshua elsewhere, in Akkadian uh, and other places. This is called conquest literature. Oh, interesting. And so royal figures in the ancient Near East would often brag about who they beat up. Um, you know, <laughs> they bragged about two things, what we built and who we beat up. And and so much of royal literature revolves around that. And, and in the case of who we beat up, they would often go into graphic detail. I mean, you're talking about piles of heads. 
um, wow. blood running through the streets ankle deep um, and that sort of thing. We're just and it's very violent and it's right. very and it's very vivid, but it's also hyperbolic. Yes, sure. And 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 these ancient Near Eastern kings, and we can thank Laws, uh, Lawson Younger Jr. for this because he's compiled a very good monograph that that juxtaposes all of these similar types of literature and said, look, we're dealing with a a recognized literary type, and that's what we have in Joshua. And now, last night when you're telling mm-hmm. my boys this, this is perfect for them. Yeah. Like they're they're Titus will soon be thirteen, Andy's fourteen, and when you said you know blood running mm-hmm. ankle deep, I I looked over at them. And their eyes just kind of went up. And but then I also saw in them, like as you were saying it, but obviously you said, but this is hyperbolic. Now yeah. they, they they know the word hyperbole. Yeah. But then it was like, oh, it kind of clicked in. Yeah. So you're saying it's a, like a form of literature, just like you'd have a, a biography yeah. or poetry, conquest literature is his own literature that assumes some sort of like movement of exaggeration. Yeah, yeah. It's there's hi, there's hyperbole that's involved in the definition, and we do this from time to time. I mean, we will exaggerate details. You know, I'll come home and talk to my wife yeah, and tell sure. her a story, and sometimes I'll exaggerate details for rhetorical effect, and that's right, what it's right. for. And she knows me well enough to know, like, okay, you really didn't do that, but I get the point. So we do this all the time, and in literature, it's no different. And in these conquest accounts, the vivid detail of the violence is often exaggerated, right, for rhetorical effect. I mean, you stop and think about that. Think about how much blood has to be running through a street for somebody to walk through that street ankle right. deep in it. That's right. a lot of bloodshed. So by definition, there's hyperbole involved. Now, for people who tend to have a high view of Scripture, this can be initially unsettling. Well, what right, do you right. mean there's exaggeration in Scripture? What are you talking about? And and that's a kind of a tangential conversation. Right. But remember, Jesus used hyperbole as well. Sure. And so there's hyperbole throughout Scripture. What tends to unsettle us is the possibility that there may be hyperbole in historical literature. Right. And 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 because you know, we like our history of a certain type. We like it cut and dry, you know, Joe Friday, give me the facts, ma'am, just the facts type thing. Well, and the reality is, is that we have to understand the way ancient history was written. Mm-hmm. And particularly when ancient conquest accounts were compiled as historical literature, historiographic literature, there was exaggeration involved. So I think that's another element that's converging on this. So do I think people died? Yes, I absolutely yeah. think people died. And when you're dealing with death, particularly in the Iron Age, you're going to have collateral damage. Right. Um, but is that does that necessarily mean that I've Joshua totally destroyed everybody? No, I think that's where hyperbole comes into play. And I think that's what's to be expected in this type of literary account. Again, we're reading this, the, the text of Joshua with an awareness of ancient Near Eastern literary conventions, how they wrote their literature in the ancient world, because they did it a little bit differently yeah, than yeah. we do. Um, their histor- history writing looks a little bit differently, and in this case, because it's this type of literature, this is involved. Yeah, so it's, it's would it be similar to saying, like, um, this Sunday is going to be the Super Bowl, and I don't know, you, you're from Ohio, does mm-hmm. that mean you're going to root for uh, the Bengals, or are you a Browns person? No, I'm not a Browns person, absolutely okay. not. Okay, no. so, like, if the, if the Bengals win— Right, yeah. they totally destroy. Right. They totally destroy their appointment. Like, but that's not necessarily. They might. They might have won by a large margin. Now, I know that these aren't apples to apples right. type of uh, analogies. Uh, or well, here's a close this. one for you. Here's okay. a close one for you. Yeah, tell me. Think in recent memory. How can the United? How could the United States declare victory, complete victory in Iraq, knowing mm. full well that there was still an insurgency, mm. knowing still well that they had to clean up the riffraff, right, but yet sure. they could claim victory. For, for reasons. So we do this all the time in military accounts and military rhetoric. We claim total victory 
realizing that all the details aren't necessarily yes yes aren't yes. necessarily so so I don't have a problem with 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 the accountant Joshua telling us that he totally destroyed or had complete victory yes um against the Canaanite population knowing full well that there were still of them there were still some of them because they existed. persisted they yeah persisted they persisted as a people and we they, know they this. come up later in right. Joshua this, right? yeah and Joshua the book of Joshua itself seems to recognize this and that's the other thing about this Joshua itself will make this statement the book itself will make this statement and then also a few chapters later, talk about the remaining inhabitants in the land that had still had to be dealt with. Yes, yes. So you can see how we need to be sensitive to these claims and understand them in the context of conquest accounts. Sure. So there's also a sense of like uh, the theological meaning right. of harem right. and what that could mean and, and totally destroy. Yeah. What does that mean? So this is another. So we have the linguistic issue. Right. Right. That, that's very difficult. We have the literary uh, genre issue, which is the conquest account, which involves hyperbole and, and, and a certain way of talking about these types of things. The other, another thing that is converging on the usage of this word is um, the theological um, implications of it, because um, this word will be associated throughout the book, and particularly the opening, uh, the opening 11 chapters. I'm, I'm thinking of the raw data. I'm trying to pull it off the top of my head. But I think of all the 20-plus occurrences of haram in uh, the root in Joshua, I think all but one of them occurs in the first 11 chapters. Interesting, okay. And 10 and 11 are a big focus of locus where they appear. But they also appear, there, there's also a congregation of recurrences around the Jericho episode. Right, interesting. So, and, and, and for those of us who are familiar with the Jericho episode, we know the weight of the Jericho episode. We know the significance of the Jericho episode because this is the initial movement into the land this is their right, first right, this right. is their first um uh m- proactive military action and um uh they're given specific instructions about what to do with jericho right um and there's also people associated with jericho and they're given specific instructions on what to and so i'm thinking about rahab right um yep. who is the canaanite prostitute who was technically supposed to be under this haram right yeah she should have been taken out yeah right? she's a part of the indigenous canaanites and um, and so she's supposed to be under this classification. And you got to really think about haram as a classification okay, more than anything else. So you can haram people, you can haram cities, you can haram objects. Um, it, you really do need to think about it as a classification. So the, the word, the other translation that you gave earlier, devoted to the band, to the that, that that's helpful to me. It's like it's devoted to this task, devoted right. to this thing that's against what God wants to have happen. Right. And so in that sense, I can. Uh, hear it like uh, her work yeah. being a part of that. Haram really classifies um, something to be used in a specific way. There's a okay. certain set of expectations that are then kind of imparted upon it. So this is why you see it in Leviticus. Um, you know that book's all about ritual and 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 cult, the way what, how you handle yourself cultically speaking and those types of things. So we do see this word in in, in Leviticus in a cultic context, and that seems to suggest that when something is haramed. There's a certain set of expectations that cannot be violated that mm. that have been that kind of gravitate towards and been put on it. Mm. So y- y- I think that's a, a healthy way to think of this. Um, and so Rahab right. is under this haram. There's a certain set of expectations surrounding her as a Canaanite woman that you're supposed you know, that are supposed to be adhered to. They're supposed right, to be right. honored, and the Israelites are supposed to be obedient to that. Um, but also, uh, when it comes to Jericho, the, the, the booty, the, the plunder of Jericho, is also put under this haram classification. Mm-hmm. And, and that's specified in the book, and it's essentially you're not to take any of it. Mm. Because normally you come upon a city, 
and one of the things you do is you're, you 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 take the spoils out, and this is you know, part of your payment. You know, you reap reap the spoils of, of your work. And God tells Israel, no, 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 you're not going to no. touch any of that. Um, this is Jericho. This is all mine. And this is where we get into Achan. Right. Achan right, right. is the Israelite who's a part of the— Takes some of it. And, and he, yeah. he, he, he's, you know, the story goes that he's walking through Jer- Jericho, and he sees a coat, and he really right. likes that coat. He thinks it's a great coat. And he takes the coat. Right. And he violates the harem. And 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 harem and so, right there. Yeah. So he he violates the, the harem, expectations, the, yeah, that, like the destruction, the yeah. total destruction. Right, right. Yeah. The, so the, he's not doing yeah. that. He's he. This is hands off stuff. Interesting. So he looks at it, likes it to the point where he's going to consciously disobey the classification of all of that. He's going to say, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and pick this coat mm-hmm. up, and I don't mm-hmm. care if that's been under the harem. Right. And and it's been set aside for God. I'm not gonna I'm gonna take it home. And of course, this if you know the story, this is the problem because by him taking the object that is cheremed, right, right, he himself and his family become cherem. Mm. So when they violate the expectations, they put themselves under the punishment of violating those expectations. So it's a very interesting concept. And so what you have in the book of Joshua is this flip flopping. Because Rahab, the story of Rahab is, is that she's once a Canaanite who's supposed to be under the harem ban. Right, right. But she ultimately, at the end of the day, is not because right. of what? Right, yeah. Because she is willing to go to the community, go to the spies, and say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm signing up with you all. Right, right. I want a part of that, and I'm willing to make this confession, this statement of allegiance. I've heard about your God. I've heard about what he does, and I want to be a part of that. And so by her confession— she basically states, I'm willing to live by your community's ethos. Hmm. Conversely, Aiken, through his disobedience, says, right. I'm no longer willing to live by your community's ethos. So the lady who was under the harem ban initially is no longer, based on confession and faith and willingness to live by the community's ethos. And the guy who was in the community is pushed outside of the community, subjected to the harem right. because of his disobedience. And so all of this, this interaction— That will preach— yeah, hold that thought. I mean, I'm telling you, this is why you come to seminary. This, this is why we need you to come. Like, if you can't hear that and think like, man, there's this contrasting two people of what you do and the nature of confession in yeah. the midst of that. I'm telling you. Now, look, I want to encourage folks just to really think about, like, we're still working through this. But, and this might seem kind of deep, and you may, maybe you get lost for a second or two, but we're trying to outline the depths of what's going on here. It's like not just one thing, not just reading it and saying, oh, this is a terrible God. Why did you want right. to serve it? And said, let's get underneath this a little bit. So this is in part yeah. my encouragement to people to think about studying at a deeper level. And WBS would be a great place to come. <laughs> All right, keep and, going. Yeah. And, and I think that's the key. I think everybody gets fixated on chapter 10 and 11 where it's, where it's very quick. It's very rapid fire. Josh was harming person after person after person, city mm-hmm. after city mm-hmm. after city. But we fail to connect it back to Rahab and Achan and the lessons to learn there because that's the same word. It's mm. the same root family. Yeah, it's so appearing. It's, it's, so it's, it's, you know, instead of just looking at this thing piecemeal, you have to take it under consideration of the, of the message as a whole. And the message of Joshua as a whole when it comes to this root is it's way more than what you think. Mm. It's, it's, it's way more than, well, did you kill him or not? Mm. It, mm-hmm. There's something more deep and there's something more rich because all of these things are aligning and all of these things are converging in those opening 11 chapters of Joshua. This is all related by the recurrence of that root. Mm. And so this is a concept that is way more than just, well, is he committing genocide or not? Right. It's like, are you trusting that God's going to take you 
where he's promised to take you. Mm-hmm. And, like, and will you take the steps that you need to do yeah. that? So, and so, I, so again, we have the. This is a very complicated conversation to have because of the linguistic issues, right, right. because of the genre issues, and then you have the issue of the literary message through the context, the, the message of Joshua as a whole. Mm-hmm. And we realize, based on the recurrence of this word, that it's way more than just a military action. There's something more deep. And so we, at the, the, the final level that we have to ask ourselves is, what, what, makes, what makes sense of all of this? How right, can we right. use the same word in the context of Rahab and Achan and Jericho, which clearly seems to say something theological, and it seems to be, it seems to be import, importing a commentary on the nature of obedience, right. and are people within the community willing to live by that ethos and continue to obey, or are they going to choose to disobey? And then a commentary about the people outside of the community and what allows them to come into the community. Well, it's their confession. So it, 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 you know, it's, it, it's telling us that there's something more than just a surface-level monolithic meaning here it's there's something else going on and and what ties in my opinion what ties this all together is the book as a whole what's the book as a whole trying trying to teach us and joshua is as i tell people it's more than just conquest and it's more than just land allotments Mm -hmm. because remember in joshua we have those really really boring chapters that talk about land allotments (laughs) Right, right and 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 that's another type of literary that's another distinct literary genre and um, but it has its purpose in it. But but they're in there too. So Joshua was more than just military conquest. Joshua was more than just land allotments. Yeah. Joshua, in my opinion, is is about defining the community of God in this very critical time. Uh, Joshua is set against Iron Age one, mm. which spans from about twelve hundred to about a thousand BC, and this is very critical historically speaking, because. Around 1150, 1200, Egypt recedes. Egypt mm. pulls back. Mm. Up until that point, they were ruling this era with, with, with dominance. Mm-hmm. And they were one mm-hmm. of the great, great ancient empires. And they're forced out due to the collapse of the late Bronze Age. And so it leaves this entire swath of land right for the pickings. And it's crazy. Mm. And there are so many polities jockeying for position, and Israel is one of them. And so Israel steps into this context having to define themselves. So Israel is going to lay claim to lay claim to this land, but they have to define themselves. Mm. Who are we? Where do we live? Who do we serve? How do we live? Wow, that's the point of Joshua, and I think that's the point of Joshua, because Joshua will revisit this covenantal idea over and over. It's about Joshua as a book is about identifying who Israel is mm. by means of where are they living, land allotments. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how are they living? This is where the covenant idea comes into play, and that recurs in a variety of different ways, particularly the end, chapter 22 and 23, actually 23 and 24. Joshua's on his way out the door, and he's telling the people to remember the covenant. So mm. that's the ideological framework for the community. So who are we? Where do we live? How do we live? And who do we serve? And it's not Yahweh. just how we got there. Yeah, yeah. Not just, that, that's yeah. part of like what people see at first. And so there is a desire to understand the way of life for this community that's bubbling below the surface. Mm-hmm. And so when you put all these things together and you put this layer upon layer upon layer, you realize that this word harem is more than just a military term, and it's not genocide. It's a way to have a commentary. It's a way to have, to, to way to have comment. It's a way to talk about defining the community and telling everybody that our community— um, uh, expects us to live a certain way. Hmm. And when we violate those expectations, then there are consequences. Hmm. 
And so the, 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 the shadow of Rahab Aiken, the shadow of the Rahab Aiken contrast, really looms large over this entire concept. And it ceases to be merely just a military statement, but it becomes a theological statement. Mm-hmm. And of course, the very last layer of this is when you put that in the context of the canon. Right. And orthodox, Jesus. Yeah, yes. in orthodox theology, we believe that there is, at the end of the day, there will be an expe- a set of expectations that we will have to answer for. And those of us who are within the community, the kingdom of God, however you want to say it, and are willing to live by this standard, will continue to remain inside the community. But for those of us who are not willing to live according to that standard and therefore find themselves outside of the community, well, there are consequences. Mm. So there's a lot of layers going on here, and there's a lot of things. So, so you know, again, does that answer all the questions associated with this? Absolutely not. Right. Does, is this still a hard term? Absolutely. Yeah. Is this still a hard concept? Absolutely. But at the very end of the day, don't kid yourself. It's not, this idea is not just about genocide. Right. It's interesting, too, because this gets into the philosophical question based on the, in the problem of evil, too. And I know we're yeah. kind of stepping outside mm-hmm. of, like, the literature itself. But there also is this question about judgment in yeah. general mm-hmm. and not understanding in totality what it means for the, the fate of the unevangelized. Mm-hmm. Like, what does it mean for f- these folks to experience mm-hmm. eternity? We, if we assume that this life is it— mm-hmm. Well, then this might look pretty bleak, yeah. but we also affirm that there's another realm of existence mm-hmm. beyond just this life, and we rest in the judgment mm-hmm. of God in that. Mm-hmm. Like we're not aware of what's happening there. I mean, what do you? Th- I mean, do you deal with those questions? I mean, how do you think through that yourself? Well, you know, it's well, difficultly. That's, that's yeah, you struggle. Yeah. You struggle with those questions. I mean, you know, these are questions that are that, quite frankly, they haunt us, and um, uh, they haunt professors because we don't have a great answer for them. Right. You know, in situations like these, I, I lean back onto what I know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think uh, the creeds are very clear that, you know, we, we hold to this idea of final judgment, and, 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 and that's going to happen, and that's a re- very real reality. Right. And, and I hold to that as well. Um, the details of that, yeah, that's where faith comes in and, and, and that sort of thing, and I, you know, I'm glad that I'm not the one making those decisions and that right, sort of thing. Right. But, you know, those are situations where I lean back on what I know right. and what's very clear. Um, and there's a responsibility, I think, for what you know and what yeah. you've been presented with. Yeah. Like, and, and even for us on this side of the New Testament, like we're aware of the full revelation yeah. of God in the person mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ yeah. and our responsibility to respond to his gracious yeah. initiative in time and space. So if like that's the case, looking back at how the um, Amalekites are, yeah. uh, responded— um, Canaanites here in this situation, I, 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 like how do we end up, like we end up thinking of this, maybe maybe there's something we will never fully know, yeah, yeah. but we do have what we do know, we can trust in God's yeah. grace, we trust in his goodness, his holiness, and the reality of judgment that's coming, which isn't always a bad word, like yeah. judgment brings in, in eternity, judgment brings a new creation. Yeah, right. So I think, and, and, and I think that's, I think what you said is, is, is important. We can lean on what we know and what we have. And I think when it comes to this issue of, of the Canaanites and the judgment, and particularly Joshua, it's not a hopeless message, mm. particularly around a term that seems to be portrayed and such. Because remember, you do have those passages in chapter 10 and 11 where Joshua, Joshua is cheremin and cheremin and going from one place to another. But you can't have that conversation without also having the conversation of Rahab. Mm, right, and right. And, and so it, it, it is a potentially hopeful concept 
because all of these things, again, all of these things are tied together in the book of Joshua through the recurrence of that verb right. or that, that root. And um, it's, it's, it's wanting you to have that conversation. Interesting. That, that it's not all doom and gloom. It wasn't all doom and gloom for the Canaanites. Um, they had opportunities, and Rahab symbolizes that. Um, the, 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 as I say, the definition or the, the boundaries of the community were definitive, but they were also porous. Mm, meaning, meaning you could, if you were on the outside, could find your way in. Right. The scripture's littered with examples right. of that. I'm thinking of uh, the uh, Aramean general as well. Sure. Who was who was uh, who who finds himself you know, having this confession of faith as well? There's a lot of parallels between what happens. through you all yeah. the nations of the world yes will be blessed right like this is like it's not just an exclusivist yeah. message yeah but the direction also goes the other way so those of you who are inside can find yours right outside yes, yes based yes. on a variety of things including disobedience so these when you get so the point is is that when you get to these statements in chapters ten and eleven yeah it's not just this robotic genocidal, ungracious, unmerciful action, you're supposed to understand the implication of what happened to Rahab and Achan. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a possibility, yeah, there's a possibility here that these people associated with Machida and all these other towns, you know, could quite frankly be inside the community at some point based on something like what Rahab does. So it, I don't see this, I don't, I guess the point I'm trying to make is and, that— And it's not historically, I'm like, you wouldn't, as, as a historian, you wouldn't look at this and say, yeah, they were all totally destroyed. Like we're saying, I, this I, was, already yeah. we, just reminding us that we went back through this, we looked at hyperbole, we <laughs> looked at the semantic range mm-hmm. of the word, we looked at theological meaning of the word, then we looked at it, kind of the focus of Joshua, then ultimately mm-hmm. leading to the New Testament and Christ mm-hmm. and the com- Christian community. So like, this isn't just referring to it in this very simplistic right, way right and 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 we can't fall into the temptation of looking at complicated concepts myopically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and through this really narrow lens and everything like that because we do ourselves a disservice and we do we set ourselves up for somebody like richard dawkins mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so it's not helpful and 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 it's ultimately it's it ultimately undermines our theology because our theology is is one of graciousness and it's one of hope and it certainly is again the the, the image that i continue to go back to is is our we we have a definitive we our boundaries are definitive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we know who we are we know how we live we know who whom we serve okay kind of sounds like joshua right <laughs> um yeah and and yet people can move in and out of that based right. on their obedience based on confessions based on faith um and so that means for those of us who are inside that community we have to continually re-up for, mm. for instance, we have to continually confess. We have to continually repent, and we can't blatantly disobey mm. because we don't know the consequences. All it takes is one. Mm. Achan had Achan did. For all we know, Achan just made that one mistake, right? And that not only undermined him and killed him, but it also had implications for his family as well. Mm. It's interesting. I just preached on Psalm 16, and there's a lot of this kind of language of of inheriting the land. You are my portion, mm. my cup, uh, the boundary lines. You're my portion. Um, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Like it's, I think it's alluding back to this same image of taking on the land, coming into the land. Mm. But but I think of the boundary lines for Rahab, yeah, and what that meant for her as she harremed, yeah, you know. And and so when that happens, she becomes a part of the line that brings about yeah. the Messiah. And, and I think that's you know? like I think that's like the quintessential statement on this whole thing is is you know, not only is she a Canaanite woman. But she ultimately finds herself in the most important genealogy yeah. in, in, in all of human history. And that's crazy. 
um, in and of itself. And I think that's kind of the icing on the cake that this woman, you know, represents a lot. Yeah. And, and I think she symbolizes a lot. And, and, and again, part of the beauty and the oomph behind her symbolism is the fact that she's also contrasted with somebody who was supposed to be in. Mm. Aiken mm. was supposed yeah. to, Aiken's supposed, Aiken's supposed yeah. to understand this. Like he, un, he's supposed to, you're supposed to understand, you, when you come across Aiken, you're supposed to think he should know better. Yeah. And he does yeah. because when he's confronted, it's kind of like, yeah, I did this. Yeah. So, it, but man, so it's, again, this it's is really it, good. It's a very interesting concept that is so layered and so loaded. And in many ways, it's indicative of a book that is so layered and so loaded. It's yeah. way more and than just final judgment hasn't come. No. And so this interesting thing is like, you, you can, we can raise our fists up at God and say, how would you, how can you let this happen? And there's a sense like I'm hearing this, like maybe this would be wrong. Maybe I'll pull it back. But it's almost like God saying, you don't know how I finished this story. Yeah, well, you don't yeah. know it. You don't know it. I mean, and I know that that raises some questions for people. But I think we're seeing here how studying scripture in this way, the the kind of the the way we look at words, the way we look mm-hmm. at history, the way we look at genre, the way we look at the direction of the book, and what's happening here, and the theological message that's yeah. in there. I, I, Dave, thanks so much for taking time. To, you have you want to say anything else? No, I, I kind I, of interrupted you. No, I, I, I think that's fine. I mean, this is so good. And, and like, what what are some of the classes where we talk about these themes? themes here at wbs like old testament interpretation would you would yeah you we, we cover a lot of this we i mean it's a real quick flyby but you know we get into issues of history and, and the issues of literature and how do you understand you know the ancientness of the literature because you know remember you know vast majority of god's revelation comes through literature but it comes through ancient literature mm-hmm. and um um and so we have to if we really are serious about trying to understand what's trying to be communicated you know we yeah. have to study these things and so that's why I encourage my students to, you know, not just think about the conquest accounts of Joshua just as conquest accounts, but also look at them as conquest accounts in the context of the ancient Near East. Because right. when you start to understand the nuances and the dynamics of how they wrote this type of literature, then you begin to realize, okay, there's something a little bit more going on here. Let's go a little bit deeper in those types of things. So we cover a lot of that stuff in OT 516 interpretation, history of interpretation and stuff. And there are other avenues to, to, to look into this with a little bit more depth and detail. Um, but those are the main classes that we emphasize: understanding literature in the context of the ancient Near East. Um, understanding and our philosophical theology classes yeah. to deal with these questions from a philosophical level. Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of giving people a little yeah, hint of where they can where they can pull this in. Yeah. And it's not going to be a quick Facebook or tweet where you're going to get an answer. No, no, and, that's, and so that's an important thing to keep in mind. Let's go a little deeper. Do you really want an answer? Like, yeah. do you really want to edu- be educated, or do you just want like a quick response to somebody in the office? Right. And that's what I think we're trying to get at here. Yeah, I, I think if you, I mean, if you had to boil this down to a tweet worthy statement it would be maybe it's more than meets the eye yeah at least on this topic in the book of joshua or there's more to the story there's more oh there you go all right so let me conclude here what's is there more to the story of dave schreiner some things that you know not your average student would know or that people don't know about you so like i i ask this question a lot of folks and like you know maybe they like to scuba dive or maybe they like to do other things so what is it what's more to the story for dr schreiner about me yeah about you or oh i wasn't anticipating this um, what do you, what do you like to do with your I, family? Uh, well, we like to hike and we like to be outdoors. Um, tell uh, us about your family. So I'm married to Jenny. Okay. Uh, we, um, we met in uh, a church, so it's the typical, like, where'd you meet <laughs> your wife? I met her at church. <laughs> um, I can actually say that. Um, so we, uh, got married when I was in seminary. We have three daughters, Maddie, Bailey, and Lily. 
Um, currently, they're eleven, eight, and three. And you guys, you guys like to hit the national. We parks do, we do. We like to go to the national parks, and we were talking about this last night. Um, so we like to be outside. We like to be active. I run a lot. Um, okay. Um, and Jenny's a Jenny was a uh, all American cross country runner too. So okay. at Indiana Wesleyan, so she was on a all American team and everything like that. So she runs a lot too. So we're we're very active. We like to stay active and that sort of thing. And yeah, we when when our kids get in trouble, we make them run laps. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> and 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 those types of things. So yeah, um, I'm kind of a boring person. Okay. Well, that's not. Yeah, 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 yeah. My, I mean, look what we're talking about. Nah, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's nerd stuff. Um, but you know, it I'm I. It, I like a good science fiction movie. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, I'm I'm kind of all over the place. What's your, get, get, what's oh, I like heavy metal. I like heavy metal music. Okay, Did interesting. You, could you peg me for a heavy metal guy? I I think I could. You could. We're okay. about the same age, and I could see you. Because most baggy people pants. You yeah. Know, no, no, no. I didn't know baggy pants. Oh, interesting. But I like heavy metal's my jam, which is okay. kind of which is kind of weird because not many people can say that. But yeah, it's. That's kind of odd. I'd say that's a little bit odd for me. Well, that's fine. That's good. So there's more to the story of Dave Schreiner. There's yeah. more to the story of Joshua 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we hope you'll check it out. Thanks so much for coming to the More to Story podcast. It's a blessing to have you come along. Look, I just want to let some folks know, like, it's meant a lot to me over the last several months. Many people have reached out to me, wrote encouraging notes, maybe one or two kind of negative ones, but... Uh, I really appreciate all of the feedback that we get. And if you find this helpful, this might be something that you could just like share a link to this. One thing I found to be effective, like it's great when people share it on social media because that just like ups the number of views that we get and the way people find us. And people always find out about our podcast when people share. It's an amazing thing that happens. I was talking to two people from two different continents just last week who wanted to reach out to me to talk about some of the things that are happening in the Salvation Army denomination where I serve. But they found out about the podcast because one person's mom just share a link to them and so in this case when you're maybe you've dealt with this question with somebody in your church or something maybe it's just a quick like forwarding it via a text so that somebody can get a sense that there's some more answers and there's more to story to these type of problems of genocide in the old testament than maybe people think and, and we think it's certainly the case so thanks a lot thanks a lot for coming along this podcast god bless you